What Does It Take to Win? Hosted by track record founders David Carey and Scott Gardner. Ready again. Transforming your track record with leadership coaching. Inspired by elite performance from sports and business. On your arms. Sidetrack from leading performers in sports and business to find out what does it take to win. Hello and welcome to the Track Record Podcast. Each episode, we are asking leaders in sport and business, what does it take to win and unearthing the gems behind their success. And today we have got a cracking episode, two leaders in mental health awareness. Catherine, who have we got today? Thanks, David. Today we have Rob Stevenson, who is an international keynote speaker, campaigner and consultant on a mission to help create happier, healthier and higher performing workplaces. Rob experiences bipolar disorder personally, and as a result of which he has founded a business called Inside Out, which is a social enterprise with a mission of smashing the stigma of mental health, and also is the CEO of Form. Alongside Rob, we have Helen Richardson-Walsh, who is, was part of the Olympic gold medal winning hockey team in Rio 2016. And Helen also has an interest in organisational psychology and is doing a master's on that subject. So guys, I think what would be really helpful to give people some context on your backgrounds and why you feel mental health is such an important talking topic right now would be just for you both to just give us a little bit of a brief overview about how you've got to where you are now. So Rob, could you give us a summary of of that, please? Certainly. And uh, thanks uh, so much for having me. It's really good to be here. So um, the the short answer is I experienced bipolar disorder personally. And I was diagnosed when I was 30. I'm 48 now. And I could see the signs going back through my 20s, even to my late teens. But I didn't know what was what was wrong, why I was different. But as I got into my 30s, I started to struggle much more and more and was having increasing times out of the workplace. So I got a diagnosis of depression, which later became a, a, a bipolar diagnosis. And after some really low points, um, and when I was 31, it got really dark for me and I didn't want to carry on with life, to be honest. But after those low points, I learned to manage my condition um, with a whole bunch of things from medication to therapy to things like exercise and sleep prioritization and, and making sure I've got the right social connections in place. But I did so very much under the radar for 15 years with only those close friends and, and family knowing about it. And I, and I often make the joke that um, I used to put the word physio um, in my diary um, mm. when I was going to see my therapist for absolute years. And my team must have wow. thought I've got the worst physiotherapist <laughs> in the world, you know. I mean, they exist. I know that. <laughs> I totally appreciate that. I guess my light bulb moment came in 2017 when... Um, Really, mental health exploded in in the UK, and and actually, I remember being at a conference uh, that that Helen was speaking at, um, hosted um, by Legal and General, the Not a Red Card event, and I saw all of these people being open about their their mental health, and I thought, why am I hiding this? So I decided to come out, share my story, which I did. And the reaction to that story was really overwhelmingly positive. But it also opened my eyes to the fact that so many people experience a mental health challenge in silence. So this really inspired me to think, how could I contribute to make a difference? And I kept hearing the same message. We do not have enough senior business leaders who are open about their challenges of mental ill health. And I thought that's where I could contribute. So founded Inside Out, which is a social enterprise, And at the core of that, we publish an annual list of senior workplace leaders who are open about the fact that they have a mental health challenge with a view to normalising the conversation uh, and smashing the stigma. And there's a bunch of other stuff I do around that that I'm sure we'll get into, but it's really that personal journey that's got me to this place. Incredible. Thank you so much. And and Helen, how about you? What's brought you to, to the point where you're also talking around the subject? Yeah, I think it's um, probably similar to Rob in that through my own experience of struggling with my mental health um, at some point in my uh, my life or a few few moments in my my life. You know, I I played hockey, played all sports actually when I was growing up, and sport was really my safe space. If you like, that was where I really thrived and I was at my very best. Um, and I mean, you know, to the point where 
an early nickname I got was Cocky because I was very confident. I was very, um, very self-assured in that kind of environment. And so when I struggled with my mental health, it came as a, as quite a, a bit of a, um, a shock in a way in that, you know, someone so confident, so, you know, self-assured could be experiencing feelings like I was feeling, um, you know, Rob spoke about some dark times and I certainly had some dark times with, um, I think probably depression, um, mainly and it came about through suffering with injuries. I had quite a few bad injuries in my career. Um, the worst one was probably needing double back surgery and then missing out on, um, on tournaments. And I think a lot of my identity was embroiled about being a sports person and, and then that being taken away from me, I really struggled. But that's why I then started to get interested in it. And then the kind of evolution of sport and society, I think, started to really pick up on well-being in the latter years. And as a team, we started to do that as well. And some of the things that we did within our team really started to answer some of the, the questions that we, we hadn't been we hadn't really been taken seriously. And once we started to put those things in place, we then started to thrive as a team as well. And that's why I'm so so passionate about it because of my own experience and, and, and struggling myself. And like Rob, you know, once you start talking about this, there's a lot of people out there who go through the same thing. And then realizing that, that it's actually a performance thing as well not just in sport but in life getting the best out of yourself as an individual for your life whatever that is you want to be in the best version of yourself that's why I'm so so passionate about it because you know there's so many um things that people can do um that can help in that whether that's just for themselves or whether it's part of a team um, a sport a company or whatever it's such a privilege to be able to hear uh two real high performers being able to articulate that there are challenges in the way that you guys have and one thing that really strikes me i mean there, there's an obvious question i should be asking you helen which is what were the questions you weren't asking i promise i will get back to that but yeah. but the the key the, the key thing that both of you were mentioning was around identity um, and the perceived impact of being able to speak out about these areas and, and the perceived feeling of it might harm my identity. To both of you, really, how does identity play a role within mental health, both positive and negative? Rob? I, I think it plays a huge role. And I, and I think because of the stigma of mental ill health, we associate uh, experiencing a mental illness with weakness. And that really, I think, will make people feel reluctant in a lot of cases to say, I'm struggling with my mental health. And in the current times, more people than ever will be experiencing a challenge with their mental health because of what's going on around them with isolation, with anxiety, with levels of stress. So I think there's two parts to it, really. There's, there's how does one perceive oneself? Um, and then there's how does, how does society perceive you? And whilst there is a stigma of mental illness... I think we've really we, we really experience challenges sometimes in talking about our mental health, but we don't feel the same way with our physical health. We um, we're very happy to say mm. I've got a cold or I've got a food poisoning or I've even got cancer, and 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 cancer isn't as stigmatised as it was years ago. Whereas our mental health is, is is very much tied up within this 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 thought of being perceived as weak or underperforming. Whereas actually, I, I agree with Helen that there's a great performance opportunity for everybody to look at how to promote positive well-being and mental health. Mm. And Helen, same question: like, how did that affect you? Yeah, well, I think. Well, I mean, what Rob's just said there in terms of perception of myself and how others are perceiving me—that was massive, and in, in probably in played a big part in in why I struggled so and went to such dark places. Was that my identity when I was injured and in that identity of being a successful sports person, um, a hockey player at the top of her game, I was no longer that. And I really struggled to then understand and appreciate what I was then. If I wasn't that, mm. well, what am I? Who am I? And the perception of how others are looking at me, feeling like I failed, you know, others looking at me in a, in a way I wasn't quite as good as I, I thought I was, or, you know, things like that. And to having those types of doubts then creep in, and I and I lost a lot of my confidence and self-esteem 
through that lack of identity at that time. And how did you start to create that new identity almost, that, that kind of you were this successful sports person and then you obviously became again the successful sports person. But that answer, you know, asking that question, what am I, who am I? How were you able to start thinking about how to answer that question? It's a really challenging question. And if I'm honest, I'm still going through that a little bit. Having now retired from from hockey um, and transitioning out of sport, and I've recently just given birth to my daughter um, not long ago. And so there's a new identity that's now coming to the frame. And I'm, if I'm honest, I'm, I'm wrestling with those things a little bit because I'm still not moved on to you know potentially finding another purpose or whether I need to find a purpose these are all things that go around in my head I'm a bit of a thinker you see (laughs) Mm. Um, and but when I was in that dark place and I was trying to well I was trying to get myself out of it I found mindfulness really helpful now I know a lot of people struggle with mindfulness but for me it would just allow me to kind of sit above where I was right in the you know the deepest darkest depths of despair and just lift myself out and see it from a different perspective and not be so kind of caught up within the the daily tension and stress of all and I've just reflecting on what you were saying Helen in relation to being injured and that was almost the catalyst for that sense of identity or questioning your identity and my background was a physio within Olympic sport and head of sports science and medicine and as a physio when people had potentially career changing injuries what I felt that we were able to do well and the ones that had the capacity to do it and come out the other side really strong and actually often get a medal at the end of it were the ones that could at some point recognise that the what they felt was a horrendous moment, they could really recognise as an opportunity. And they actually used it, because they couldn't do all the things they usually would do, they used it to, as an opportunity to unpick everything about their performance and build it back up from scratch. So actually, if they wanted to get technically better, they could. If they wanted to do things they'd never been able to do, they could really focus on those things. And just to you, Rob, what... By going through to those moments where things were really dark for you, did you get that sense that you could use then that as an opportunity to rebuild? Or did you feel that it was a different experience to that and instead it was a sort of um, you know, having to scrabble and, and find your way? Or have you had a chance to reflect and think, actually, I'm starting from a, from a baseline that I have control over? It's a, it's a really good question, and I can probably give you a couple of perspectives on this. I can give you a personal perspective, but also perspectives that I hear from the business leaders who share their stories with me as well. And I think in the depths of, of my dark times, all I was doing was surviving. And mm. um, it, it was the sometimes the hardest thing in the world just to get out of bed. Um, sometimes I couldn't do that. Um, you know, my my gym bag to take my kit to the gym might have been as heavy as an elephant for my ability to pick mm. it up at times. Mm. So I think there's a period of crisis where you're surviving. I think then there's a period where you you come out of it, and and you know, I, I definitely remember a sense of, um, for me, it was exercise that I, I tapped into that that really helped with with balancing my condition, and and started to understand that. But I think it's really when you look back and reflect as, as to what you've gained um, as a result of coming through the challenge. And I hear this a lot from the leaders I speak to who, who have also come out about their challenges. And, it, and it's you really build up a sense of self-awareness that you might not have otherwise had. So I think for me, it's around knowing that what's important to me is exercise, connecting with friends and family. I need to prioritise sleep, but you know I, I balance stress pretty well, and I've got a strong sense of purpose. Um, so you build that self awareness as to what works for you, and what you, you you really get to kind of meet yourselves at the, the at the at the bottom, at the depths of where you can go, and you look yourself in the eyes, and and you you can grow from that point. But I think at that bottom bit, you're just surviving. Yeah. But I think the greatest thing that you can come back with is this level of self awareness. And um, Alistair Campbell says something quite a, quite interesting on this, that um, 
if he had two resumes, um, equal resumes, identical, but one of them had got a gap where the person had been coming to terms with a mental health challenge, which one would you hire? And he said, every time I would hire the person that has gone through the mental health challenge mm. because they've built up this sense of empathy, self-awareness. Yeah, I can totally imagine that. And when you come into businesses, and this is to, to sort of both of you, or you're doing talks, or and how do you kind of create that connection and understanding for people that haven't been through any kind of significant mental ill health and helping them to understand maybe what other teammates or people within their business may need from them as support, but also to see it as that performance advantage? I guess through kind of telling stories and and through um, sharing the experiences that that I've been through, you know, just picking up on what Rob said there, that level of of empathy, that was certainly something um, that, that has definitely increased with me over my life anyway, but through different types of situations. But the struggle with mental health was a massive one for me to increase that. You know, I was someone who was always, as I said, confident on the hockey pitch. Um, and then when I came back for the after my back surgeries, for the very first time, I understood what it was to not be confident on the hockey pitch. Mm. And I'd never, ever felt like that. Yes, I'd had you know, ups and downs in form and, you know, had bad sessions and bad weeks and, and things like that. But there was something different. I felt this level of underconfidence I'd never felt before. And I was now able to appreciate how others had felt, you know, at different times in their career. And I think as a as a team, we looked at our self-awareness and that was one of our massive strengths, which I'm sure we'll get onto. But as, a, as an individual, yeah, I couldn't agree more with what Rob said in terms of that self-awareness and how important it is for empathy and, you know, resilience in, in kind of living with a mental health illness, if that is the case. One of the big things that I spend a lot of time talking to organisations about is, look, we all have mental health, you know, and we start thinking about mental health, we immediately think of illness and people with their head in their hands. But actually, like physical health, we're all somewhere on a continuum. And actually, our actions and our choices, our environment, our societies, our workplaces, they all influence that and it moves up and down. And I think if we can start thinking of our mental health as something that is not fixed and it's not black and white, it's not ill or well, and it's something that we can influence by making positive choices like we do with exercise and nutrition uh, for our physical health, then that's really helpful because then everybody can start to understand that it's something that A, applies to all of us, but B, we're not fixed in, in any particular position. And in the current challenging times, I think that's really important because a lot of people will be experiencing a mental health challenge for the first time, I would say. Building on that, Rob, like what are some of the best practices, if you like, to include and involve everybody in those types of conversations rather than it just being, you know, some people over there who are not well? How can it become like a core element of day to day life? Well, I think if you if you look at the workplace, if you to start with and, and the opportunity of creating higher performing workplaces, the cost of mental ill health to UK employers is estimated at 45 billion in the recent Deloitte analytics. So actually, if we can treat this as a strategic priority of our organisations, like we do the creation of shareholder value, then actually there's a big productivity gain that we can make. So I think it needs mm. to be a strategic decision in our organisations. I think on a more individual level, actually that acceptance that if we prioritise some of those drivers of mental well-being, sleep, exercise, you know, some of the simple things, then we will actually be higher performing because we have more mental reserves, more resilience, more flexibility to deal with whatever life is throwing at us. So I think we need that kind of strategic level uh, and we'll see more of this as organisations look to make sure that their people are being looked after through the current crisis, um, but individual accountability for their own well-being as well. And, and what type of conversations have you witnessed that have been just really kind of high quality best practice to be able to embed on in day-to-day team session conversations? Well, I think it's about role modelling, and it, you know, and it's great that we've got um, you know people like Helen, who are our kind of Olympic heroes, being open mm. uh, about the fact that they um, had had a mental health challenge. We need that, 
Um, we also need our corporate heroes, you know, our CEOs. So mm-hmm. where you've got organizations like Lloyds Bank, where Antonio Horta Rosario has been open about his uh, mental health challenges, then that's a lot easier in that organization to cascade that down through the, the various degrees of management. But I think role modeling can happen at any level of management. And so it could be something simple, like in the normal world, making sure you take proper holiday where you turn off your emails and you have a proper mm. break from work. If our managers are doing that, then our, then our workers in, who report to those people will feel permission to do so. So I think role modeling has a really crucial role to play at every level of organization. Mm. And, and Helen, back to you. You know, you mentioned earlier uh, as a team going into the Rio Olympics, uh, you guys were not asking some of the key questions around this area. What were those key questions that you suddenly were starting starting to able um, ask and hopefully answer? It was to do with the kind of the culture that we wanted to create and the environment that we wanted to to work in. You know, for most of my career, we were part-time athletes, essentially. We had part-time jobs, or lots of us were students, or full-time jobs, to be honest, and then taking time out of work to come together at weekends and and to do training camps. But then the London Olympics changed everything and allowed us to well, get a lot more funding. And for the first time, we we had enough money to, to train full-time as a squad, and this really opened the door for us to work on not just the stuff on the pitch, you know, the tactics and the technical stuff, but actually what we wanted to be about as a team and that culture that we were all going to have to work in. And we really then started to ask ourselves the question of, okay, but so what environment do we want to be working in? And it took us a long time to, to get there. We, you know, we needed to clarify expectations of, of our goal, of our vision, of of each other and ourselves and the behaviors that we wanted to live up to. But a massive part of how it felt being in the London squad and the Rio squad was that I started to feel really safe to be myself. And as a leader within that group, so just touching on what, what Rob um, has been saying, as a leader within that group, m- me feeling safe and then sharing my vulnerability and kind of role modeling that kind of stuff has a massive knock-on effect and we wanted to really we wanted people to be the best of themselves and in order to do that you need to you know create a space where it's safe to make mistakes it's safe to ask what you might think are stupid questions it's safe to have it well it's safe and good to have conflict to disagree with each other they were the kinds of things that we wanted to create and then on top of that, if somebody was having a bad day or if somebody behaved in a way that you didn't particularly like or was out of character that, for that person, one of the things that we really tried to emphasize was changing that reaction that lots of us have of, oh, you know, what's up with them? To actually, I hope they're okay. And actually going over to them and ask, are you okay? And asking that question. So creating that kind of caring environment. And it did have a massive effect. It did have a massive effect. It took time. It took a lot of time. And by, you know, we we weren't best mates. Not all of us weren't, you know, we weren't best mates, but we created an environment that was based on trust and respect because of, of those kinds of things we put in place. I think that's amazing, the creation of safe spaces. Um, it's really important. Um, and in, in, in the corporate workplace, we're, we struggle to do that sometimes. Some businesses are really good at it, but creating environments where it's okay to fail, it's okay to make mistakes, it's okay to innovate. And I think if we can really show vulnerability uh, at all levels in an organization and allow people to be able to to do that and show up and say, I'm struggling today, or it's 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 all a bit shit today because of everything that's going on, then we can help people get through it. And the other point that that really resonated with you, with what you just said, Helen, is actually checking in with people. So we're in an environment now where it's a lot harder to get those visual cues of behaviour because we're not seeing people in that work environment every day. So I think we need to work a little bit harder to actually check in with our teams to make sure that we're asking that question, how are you today? And we're creating the safe space that people can can answer it honestly you know as as i've mentioned uh, to you previously guys that i do that with a score out of 10 and 
That's really helpful in just making it less threatening for people to answer that question, how are you today about your mental health or your well-being? Because I think people feel a little bit more comfortable saying I'm a five out of ten today than saying actually I'm feeling really anxious because of what's going on in the world. And also in these times, like you say, Rob, you know, we are checking in more. You know, I'm I'm checking in more with my mum who I, you know, can't necessarily see as much and I'm checking in with family and, and people around me. But when we are able to see each other, are we doing that? And it's just as important, you know, we know that people can hide a lot of stuff or that, you know, don't necessarily show things on their faces. And it's just as important to check in with people, even when we see them. Yeah, it's a really good point. Rob, you've absolutely inspired us as as a business and with our clients as well to really kind of take that on board. And and so every session we're now um, religiously going through that process of, uh, what score we are and, and sharing why that score is there if they want and not having the pressure of having to explain yourself if you don't. Uh, and it really has changed the the types of conversations that we as a team are having, but also we're having with our clients as well. Um, and it feels more human. Well, I think, I think you're right. And, and I think if anything can come out of the, the, the COVID challenges that, that we're experiencing now is, is when the world returns to one of physical connection, that we're actually all a little bit more human because we've been forced to think of um, how important connecting socially is. And I think it's something we really take for granted. So to to actually, as a human being, say, no, no, how are you today? Because you don't look yourself, um, you're not behaving as normal and having the confidence to do that, that is about being human. It's about caring for the people around you. And I think my hope is that we end up with a, a more human world at the end of all of this. Yeah. Helen, I'm fascinated to to hear from you, not just how it felt to be in that environment where you were checking in with each other, where it it did feel safe to be in that team and and that conflict was okay. I'm fascinated to hear, what was the impact on your performance as a result of creating that environment? Uh, I think one of the, well, I mean, we actually worked incredibly hard with our psychologist on, on a few things as well. And it was all kind of part and parcel of this culture that we were creating. And, and one of the things, well, one of kind of came under the umbrella of self-awareness um, because it is so incredibly important because once you're aware of yourself, um, you can start to recognize signs and, and triggers of, of how you're behaving and where you're going. And, and you can potentially stop yourself or, um, get yourself back on track a lot quicker and we did a couple of exercises looking at our first of all looking at our strengths um, something which we're well I don't ever want to say not particularly very good at the, in this country but as a team we certainly weren't very good um, at knowing what our strengths are and you know we were the very best at what we did in the country and we either weren't prepared to to say it or we, we didn't know what our strengths were which is pretty scary when you um when you say that out loud Mm. and so we worked on it and we spoke about our strengths and we started to talk about them um and one of the things that allowed us to do was really well get a bit of confidence from it first and foremost um we started to share it as well and things came out which people didn't know about themselves um you know, someone might say, oh, but when you do this, it makes me feel amazing. And, and those conversations started to happen. And, and people didn't know that they were making people feel good about themselves just by being themselves. Um, mm-hmm. And what that allowed to do in a performance sense um, on the hockey pitch was really to clarify um, roles, if you like, you know, this is as a hockey player. So there's there's the, the person side and the leadership side or the the individual side off the pitch but then there's the on the pitch where it also works is this is my role and this is what I'm then going to go and do and then it kind of negated any doubt so in going into every game I knew that you know as a midfielder this was my job in the press this was my job and if I just go and do that as best as I can then I've done my job and if everybody does that then we've got a very good chance of performing at our very best and then we've got a great chance of winning. And it just, those types of things um, really, really helped. And we, we, you know, we went to some interesting places. We were very vulnerable with each other 
on strengths. You know, it's, it's challenging to, to tell people what you're good at, funnily enough. Um, mm. And we also looked at, we also, you know, looked at ourselves and what we like on a good day and a bad day and our personalities and mood, you know, it's a bit similar. I love that, that um, Rob, about asking at the start of every session out of 10 um, how are you feeling? And I think I'm, I'm definitely going to use that in the future with, with my um, hockey team. Um, but yeah, really starting to, to understand where you're at on a, on a good day because you, your mood fluctuate, fluctuates. And um, just understanding where you are can then, as I say, you, know, you start to learn how to, to slide up, hopefully, rather than slide mm. down and turn that bad, that bad session into a bad day, into a bad week, into a bad month, and, and that negative spiral begins. I love that um, focusing on strengths, because you're right, particularly the British, we don't do that very well. And, and for me, that links quite closely to self-kindness in, in, a, in a strange way right now, because I think we're also very bad at being kind to ourselves and saying, actually, there's been a load of challenging stuff going on, but I did this really well today, or this went really well, or I'm grateful for this. And I think it's if we can focus on the positives that, that we do rather than everything that we're not doing as well as we would like or that we can't do in the way that we used to, I think that's really helpful for our, 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 um, our well-being right now, particularly when there's, there's external challenges that we can't control. A slight change of, um, of tack, but just a question we get asked a lot by leaders and Rob I'll direct this to you first of all so leaders who are sort of you know in sort of very high up positions within a business who recognize that mental health is really important and are totally bought into the concept but um, if they're being honest have no idea where to start in terms of implementing something within the business that is meaningful for people Um, but probably don't want to admit that because they feel as a leader is something in the current environment they should be able to be understanding, offering and implementing. So with those with those people, what would you suggest as some tangible starting points for either the conversation within the organisation or just really practical tips that they can consider? Yeah, well, the first uh, recommendation would be for you to pass on my email address and get them to talk to me. <laughs> I spend a lot of time advising organisations on this sort of stuff. But I think pra- practically, if if you really are at, at sort of ground zero but want to get on the journey of, of mental health and well-being uh, as more of a priority for the organisation, then brilliant. And what I would say is that there's no organisation that is at the top of Everest night right now. We are in the foothills at best, even the most advanced ones. So it's a great time to get on the path. Um, secondly, if you look at what an integrated mental health and well-being strategy looks like, I, I see it as three main elements. So you've got awareness, um, and this is a lot of storytelling and making it okay to talk about mental ill health. So it's people sharing stories, it's people like me coming in to do keynote talks, um, and it's getting people okay about saying, I'm struggling today. And now once we get people talking with um, internal storytelling as well, we then need people to listen, and um, so support is, is the next main part of the strategy. So that's looking at what support can we offer our employees if they are struggling with mental ill health? And most organisations in their benefit plans will have something like uh, an employee assistant programme, an EAP scheme. There may be things like for mental health first aiders or mental health champions, peer support networks. And then I think there's a third stage that often comes a little bit later, which is known as prevention, i.e. preventing people from falling ill. I like to turn this as promotion, actually, promote positive mental health and well-being. And that's then looking at an educational program, some benefits and some resources that really help people stay well or move further towards up towards the, the thriving end of the continuum. So I think my advice to CEOs who are considering this is, you know, get on the path, start small, um, get get your people to help internally because there will be no end of willing helpers. Make it a strategic priority. Um, appoint a board-level sponsor, someone who has responsibility for making sure things happen, and focus on each of those three areas. And there's, there's plenty of help out there um, as to what looks good in those areas. Brilliant. Thank you. And Helen, from your experience of sort of getting putting it in practice within a team, 
Um, and you mentioned your role as a leader within that team. Anything else that you would add to that list um, or kind of real reflections that you've had since doing it about what worked and what really brought people on the journey? Uh, I think just to add something, well, maybe emphasise um, one of the points that Rob m- made was is the, res- the response to somebody opening up. Um, I think Brene Brown talks about this really well in, in when somebody does um, show their vulnerability and, you know, has that courage to to say how they're feeling um you know we we often can respond in ways that don't help or you know even if we think that we're empathizing and we say oh yeah i felt like that and i you know and you kind of i think there's an importance to stop and to listen and to really take on board what people are saying yeah listen basically um i think that's a really key part we can put all these things in place but until we we listen um nothing you know nothing really works and how it makes that person feel when they're when they're speaking you know i i remember when i spoke to my coach in the end um about how i was feeling and and i remember him being very empathetic at that time and made me feel like he understood um, and was kind of was going to support me um, at that time. So I think, you know, from, from my personal experience and having seen it for other people as well, I think that just that really listening. And presumably because I hear it from people within businesses, going to their leader or whoever it is that they want to confide in to create that understanding rather than looking for a solution. And that's what I'm sort of hearing from your reflection as well, Helen. Yeah, It's not yeah, that they need an answer, it's just that they need someone to understand. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I, um, I have this conversation with my wife all the time because um, she's, a, she's a doer and a solution. She, she likes to find solutions. Whereas I just I just want to say how I'm feeling sometimes and just to I don't need a solution I just want to it to be known that this is how I'm feeling um, so yeah it doesn't and sometimes you don't need a solution you just need to be heard and feeling valued as a as a person is is incredibly important and and something again that helps to promote well-being and positive mental health is that feeling of being valued absolutely and we're not very good at um listening are we helen there's um that non-judgmental listening that that brene brown talks about there's a great tool actually that that would be worth making the listeners aware of um that, that was developed by the samaritans called well-being in the city and and this is a free tool that organisations can use, and it's designed to bring the listening skills of the Samaritans into the workplace. And it's it's really good, and it's a free resource that not many people know about. Brilliant. And where can they find that, Rob? Uh, if you if you Google well-being in the city Samaritans, then then it'll yeah. come up. Rob, in your um, experience, you, you mentioned that nobody's at the top of Everest, but in terms of those who are leading the charge on this subject what are they doing what is best practice right now i think best practice is evolving i, I think the um the the, the best organizations are, are really implementing the recommendations of stevenson farmer the stevenson farmer review commissioned by Theresa may as prime minister in 2017 um best practice for me looks like th- things that i've mentioned such as having mm-hmm. a, a board level sponsor um, including mental health and well-being in, in board and exco meetings at least every six months, reporting um, on the impact of your mental health and well-being activities, stri- treating it like a strategic priority. So there are some businesses like um, the Environment Agency, for example, one of their core values is they would like work to be a life-enhancing experience. Now, if we start from there, the outcomes are going to flow very well for, for health and mental health. I think then, for me, good practice also looks like we're, we're breaking stigma actively. We're training and equipping line managers to have conversations about mental health. We're imparting literacy on the whole workforce around how to proactively manage well-being and mental health. And then I think at, at, at the cutting edge of good practice, I see 
individual personalized well-being budgets that people can mm. spend um, on what's going to work for them. Because the thing about mental health and well-being, it's very, very individual. It's very personal. You know, some people get on with meditation. Other people can't do it. Other people would need to go to a, a pottery class or a singing lesson and do something socially. For me, it's exercise. Other people I know get real benefit out of weighted gravity blankets that transform their night's sleep. So it's really yeah. individual. But if you're a, you know, if you're a well-being leader that has got budget and try and spend that, you're only, it's very difficult to put a set of resources in that are going to be suitable for everybody. So real cutting-edge practice is individual budget, budgets with choice to spend on what's going to work for the individuals, but imparting literacy on helping people do that. Building on Rob's point there, Helen, how, how do you balance as a leader within a team? How do you balance you know, what the organization or the team is trying to set out in terms of uh, best practice, but also allowing individuals the flexibility and the ability to kind of own their own performance? How, how do you guys manage that balance? Yeah, I think that's one of the, um, one of the really tricky things about being uh, within a team because you want to encourage individuality. You need that individuality you need the the difference uh, the diversity because that's where the stuff comes out that's where the you know the creative minds are allowed to flow and you get some really good ideas but also for a team you need to know that you're going in the same direction and I think it kind of came back to to just talking actually just having conversations and really beginning to understand where people um, were coming from so you know we had very clear vision of what we wanted to to be in that team and our vision was to be the difference create history inspire the future now we had long long conversations about what that meant um and then underneath that we had our values um and underneath that we had our behaviors and we had long conversations to really understand what that meant for everybody so we knew that we were going in the same direction um but we didn't want everyone to be robots. We wanted to encourage that individuality. And it just I think it came down to having those conversations, um, really getting to know where someone's coming from. When someone says something or does something or has an idea that you think's stupid, you know, you have to you have to just stop and listen again and, and ask, okay, but why do you think that and where are you coming from? And really try to understand the background of that point of view. Um and it's it's difficult. It it takes time. It takes energy every single day to to do that. It's not easy. You know, you just want to go to to work, and you know, sometimes just let the day pass you by. And when you're in a sports team, you can't afford to do that because every day, every day matters to that performance. You know, in however many months' time or years' time. And so it's just those conversations, really getting to know each other. And we 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 did put processes in place. Um, that helped with that so having regular team meetings just with the players having meetings with the players and the staff having the leadership group being responsible for a buddy group so smaller groups where people could communicate in different types of settings really trying to help that um, and facilitate that process but it's it's as I say it's not hard and it, it takes effort all the time to to make that stuff happen and Helen, with that kind of effort and um, energy, I suppose, that's required, how quickly did you see that translate directly into performance that made you think this does matter and we do need to keep going with these kind of conversations? If we go back to what 2009, end of 2009, we started to have these conversations. And at that point, we had never, we hadn't won a world medal in fact, England hadn't won a world medal ever, I don't think. And as GB, we hadn't won a world medal since 1992 at the Barcelona Olympics. And we started to have these conversations at the end of 2009. And it was middle of 2010 when we went to the Champions Trophy, which is a world-level tournament, top six teams in the world, and we won our bronze medal. A couple of months after mm. that, we went to the World Cup and we won a bronze medal. And how I felt, I think, is really important in those tournaments, particularly at the World Cup, you know, it's, it's a World Cup. You've got the very best teams there. And for the very first time, I started to feel that there was this level of consistency. I'd be going out onto the pitch knowing 
not hoping like it used to be quite a lot, but knowing we were going to play at this certain, a minimum level. And if it, yeah, everything went to plan, then we'd be even better. But this minimum level that was adequate to, to win a game. And so it was a matter of months that this started to change things. And, and yeah, that's what made me think, this is, <laughs> this is amazing. Mm. You know, it's hard, but this is amazing. You know, we're going in the same direction. We all know our roles. We're, it's, you know, we're challenging each other. There's conflict. We're looking after each other. It's, it's hard. It's, and, but it, it, it started to work. Um, and that's why, I guess, so passionate about it because yeah, it's it made a huge difference. And same question to you, Rob. If if you were asked that by a leader and they put all those things in place within the business, you know, what are the proof points that they would see, or what would you, what your, what's your expectation about the momentum that builds as a result of that? I, I think it's a really interesting question for for the workplace. Um, I think actually there's there's a there's a fear in the workplace if you start putting things in place around uh, around mental health that you're going to start seeing your numbers of people being off ill with mental health go up which you probably are and you want that because you want people feeling able to be honest about what's going on for them i think then over time what what we would expect to see are those numbers coming down as we put resources plans training in place to help people um deal with the the challenges of mental ill health I think then actually the real opportunity, and 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 this is would be more akin to the the elite sporting um, team dynamic, is if we're really investing in creating cultures that are conducive to positive mental health and well-being, that are conducive to teamwork and creativity, we will just see overall business performance go up, and that 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 will metric will differ from industry to industry. But I think that one of the great untapped performance opportunities is investing in the well-being of our people. And, you know, most organisations will say somewhere that our people are our greatest assets, and yet they'll invest more in servicing the photocopier, um, which is a, a facetious <laughs> comment. But actually, mm. I think what we're going to see now are people investing more in the health and well-being of our, our employees. And I think when we come out of the, the COVID crisis, we will see the benefits of that if that continues throughout the next two years. I've got to say, you know, being able to to listen to two people who have been so open, so vulnerable, um, and yet be so successful within this environment to to really trigger and and be the catalyst for change. It's it's been a real privilege to hear you guys. I've got two pages of notes. I, that never happens. So that, that, <laughs> that in itself is a big um, kind of sign of success. And I think with Helen, you know, your ability to articulate so clearly the link between actually spending some time and energy and effort around self-awareness to talk about strengths, to build confidence, to be able to have those conversations with your team and seeing an instant, virtual, virtually instant um, performance benefit has just been an awesome um, summary to, to hear. And, and of course, Rob, you know, the, the way that you are just going full on and, and uh almost single-handedly, I'm sure it, it feels like that sometimes, um, being able to create and shine a light into this area has uh, has been a real privilege. Um, one question I always love asking at the, the end of this uh, podcast is, as a result of having this conversation, uh, what's really kind of shone out for you or, or reinforced or perhaps even um, been a new revelation for you as a result of having this conversation? Rob, I'll, I'll throw it to you first. Yeah, thank you. And um, it, I was just reflecting as you were summing up there, David, that this is a real privilege for me. It's a privilege to do what I do. But to think out of the adversity of a mental health challenge, I'm now having a conversation with one of our sporting heroes in, in your fine company. <laughs> and and that is that the benefits of being open about a, a particular mental health challenge. And I think my, my before I answer the question, my message to people is actually really good things come of when we can be ourselves and when we can be open mm. and not have to hide and and not not least of which the challenge itself will feel lighter in terms of the burden we carry. Mm. So I just wanted to say that. But in answer to your question, I think it's been really interesting to to hear. Um, uh, yeah, uh, from from the inside workings of the team dynamic for a, one of our really successful stories in in um, in, the, in the GB hockey team, and, and for me, my big takeaway is to 
really take that time a little bit to reflect on what I'm good at in what I do, um, mm. what my strengths are, because I'm running at 110 miles an hour, I'm, I'm operating on in instinct. I think to take a little time, a little walk to think, okay, what is it I'm really good at? And am I, am I properly capitalizing on those strengths? So Helen, mm. I want to thank you for, for sharing that with me. Yeah, pleasure. And same for me. Um, it's, it's been great to, to listen to to what you've got to say, Rob. And um, yeah, as you say, good things come comes from being yourself. Um, and I think for me, the thing that I'm going to take away is is something that I'm going into more of a coaching um, type role. And I think I already mentioned it earlier. I, I start. I wanted to um, really improve or, or try to facilitate the self awareness. Um, with my hockey team and I really struggled to do it without it being too um, I don't know, challenging or I don't know it seemed a bit aggressive with how I was doing it previously but your your lovely idea of just asking of one to ten um, give me a number of how you're feeling your mental health or well-being or whatever it is the question I want to ask mm-hmm. at that point that's what I'm going to take away. I'm going to I'm going to start to do that that's a really simple easy thing that I can do at the start of the session um, to increase self-awareness um, and also give me an idea of where people are at as well, which will mm. be really helpful. And for me to do it as the coach as well, I think yeah. is really important. Yeah, it works really well when our leaders lead the way on it and, and, and share share the scores to start with because that's what creates the the safe space. And uh, I'm, I'm sure David will share with the, the listeners, but I, I'll share with you a link to uh, a poster, a very simple poster that asks the questions and, and talks through the scale. Yeah, no, we'll be delighted to share that. It uh, has has helped literally hundreds of people that that we've interacted with over the last uh, little while since we had our conversation um, in Shoreditch in those days when we used to be able to meet up face to face. Catherine, um, what what have you your reflections been uh, today? So I think it's uh, it was a hugely rich conversation, which I was hoping and expecting from these guys. So that's been um, a pleasure to listen to. And I think just my reflections are having been in three Olympic cycles with different teams, with, with different emphases on mental health and emotional support. Um, I think building on their point of being able to be yourself is an incredibly um, freeing and um, mm. beneficial experience and I think um actually and even build on that is it creates an incredible working environment and when you reflect back having left that those types of environments you realize what an enjoyable learning experience it was and I think if that can be um prevalent in the workplace that would be an incredible um incredible benefit for everyone involved in those types of environments. Helen, Rob, it's been a huge privilege. Thank you also, Catherine, uh, for for guiding us through the process and asking those uh, punchy questions. Um, Thank you again for listening uh, to our podcast. Each and every time we've asked, uh, what does it take to win? And and today we uh, had a real privileged, uh, in-depth look at being able to to really see uh, mental health and the conversation around that as a performance advantage not something uh, to be hidden away so thank you guys for doing that um, and thank you for listening in